You're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where faith's deepest values meet the world's hardest problems. This season, we will be exploring the lives of great moral leaders, men and women who change the world. Our discussions will be guided by David and Colin's new book, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, available everywhere October 16th, 2018. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I am David. I'm Colin. And uh, today as we continue our discussion of some of these great moral leaders from y'all's soon-to-be released book. So we let Colin pick uh, who we're going to be talking about today. And he went with Florence Nightingale. And uh, the only thing I know about Florence Nightingale is the phrase mother of modern nursing. But I don't even know what that means. Help. Well, you must be a very poorly educated young man. All right. Well, I'll start by saying that Florence Nightingale is a feminist pioneer. She was a kind of civil service pioneer. She was a spiritual and religious thinker. In fact, there's evidence that she considered that the most important thing that she was contributing. She was a bureaucratic warrior. She was a hospital reformer. She was a field nurse. She was a recluse for the latter part of her life. She was amazing. I'm really glad that we have Florence Nightingale on this book. Not somebody who most people would put in their top 14 moral leaders probably, but I'm glad that we did because we're right and everybody else is wrong. And she's one of only two leaders in the book that I've had almost no exposure to. You mentioned feminist. That word jumped out at me. Could you tell me what that means in her context and how she is one? Rather than going into a definition, let's look at at Florence Nightingale's life. Florence Nightingale wanted to reform society. She wanted to reform a medical system. She wanted to reform theology. She wanted to reform British imperialism. She had these grand visions for, uh, for her life and for her, what role she could play in the world. And she didn't want to sit in a, in a parlor. Um, she did not want to be a wife and a mother. She thought maybe she would be interested in those things if she could also pursue her other dreams. She did not think that linen and glass were all it took to be a civilized creature. Uh, That was sort of a a paraphrase of one of her quotes. And so when somebody has these big, big dreams for society and they are, for instance, a man in her time, that's not a problem. Everyone says, great, uh, how, you know, I believe you can, you can take care of this. What are your gifts? What's your plan? Go for it. If you're a woman, especially in Victorian era London and still today, people say, well, maybe you can't do that precisely just because of your gender identity, just because of who you are. And so what makes her a feminist? What makes her a feminist is that she had the same dreams and goals and vision as a lot of people, but other folks put barriers in front of her. And so she had to adopt a vision that said, uh, or an agenda that said, no, I'm not going to allow people to close doors to the good I want to create in society for bad reasons. So the thing she's known most for is her nursing contributions. Can you, first, can you place her historically for me? I'm not sure where we are in the time period. We're saying things like early feminist, 
and modern nursing, and I'm having a hard time triangulating her historically. I can do that for you, Jeremy. Uh, she was born in 1820 in pre-Victorian England. Uh, Queen Victoria took the throne in 1837. So, and then she lived until 1910. So her entire adult life was lived under the reign of Queen Victoria. And then she exceed, you know, went nine years longer. She was born in a elite family that actually had some connections to the Wilberforce family. Here's a way to indicate how much wealth she had. Her name was Florence because she was born in Florence in Italy. The reason she was born in Florence in Italy was she came from the kind of family where the families didn't have anything they had to do, no jobs required, and so they would just take long, extended European trips. On one of those trips, she was born in Florence, Italy. She was expected to pursue a drawing room life. Uh, sit around the drawing room, be pretty, you know, limited education, the women's version of education. That was what would often happen. And to, you know, grow up, try to be attractive, get married, and replicate her mother's life. Basically, every Jane Austen novel you've ever read. Does she succeed in any of these imposed Jane Austen ideals? She hates it. From a very early age, she's aware that if she attempts to live that life, she will lose her mind. And I'm not being uh, metaphorical there. One report is that she has a call, her first call experience to be a nurse at the age of six. She wants to get out of the house and take care of people. Um, in fact, one way to think about the nursing calling is it was a possible way to get out of the house and do something for other people that was at least in the realm of possibility originally, even though it was discouraged very much by her family. But, but in the end, I think of her as a person who has a burning ambition to make a difference with her life. And the drawing room life that was prescribed for her would have blocked that. So she's fighting against her family early, early, early on, is able to kind of cajole her way to getting a little bit of nursing training to uh, then getting a little bit more. And then she's She's able to, to go to uh, London and, and, and be in a kind of elite home for women who, who need care, who come from the, the gentleman class, right? But finally, what, what um, happens is that the, the stupid Crimean War breaks out uh, over in uh, now Turkey. And um, she is called upon by her government to go serve there, though it also appears to be the case that she was looking for a chance to go there anyway. And she goes to Crimea, and the conditions of military medicine were appalling, absolutely appalling. Not that different from what we know about the Civil War, where a lot of what people died of was, you know, infection and stuff because of the conditions in which they were held after they were wounded. So she sets about fighting the military bureaucracy for a reform in the military hospital there in Crimea. What people wanted to remember Florence Nightingale for was her selfless care for the men, like the lady with the lamp was an image about her. She would work all hours and would go from, you know, from room to room, bed to bed, caring for the troops. A, a perfect Victorian image. Less sanguine for the Victorian imagination was a woman who was firing off memos back to the war ministry in, in London saying, this is ridiculous. This whole thing needs to be reformed. These men have no idea what they're doing. Let me take over. And let me reorganize this hospital and the barracks and everything so that they have a chance to survive. And she actually did that and 
uh, by all accounts, the mortality rate went down dramatically. And then she became known for that. And she actually later provided insights for the, you know, for the military medicine during the Civil War and, and after that. So, so this is 1858. And she comes back to England as a hero. And everybody wants to honor her as a nurse. Great job. You're the best nurse ever. And she was. Um, and she is, in a sense, the founder of modern nursing. But it appears to me, at least, that what she was most passionate about was breaking through the power of stupid entrenched bureaucracies so that human well-being would be systematically protected, for example, in military hospitals. And, and then her range began to uh, go beyond that as well. So nursing in her era, and this is, I think, part of what we mean when we say mother of modern nursing or founder of modern nursing, nursing is not a nice profession. Nursing is not an educated profession. Nursing is not a respectable profession. Nursing, uh, nurses tended to just clean up the hospitals um, and look after the patients at night just to make sure they didn't die and call the doctors if something actually happened. Um, so it, it was a lot more like janitorial services, what we think of in that line, than the highly educated medical care profession that we know today. Medicine as a whole evolved hugely over her lifetime. So when she first got into to nursing, the best surgeon was the one who could amputate a leg the fastest, under 90 seconds. And there weren't really anesthetics, so you can imagine why they wanted to move fast. Um, by the end of her career, and this is not necessarily because of her, uh, but there was germ theory, there were vaccinations, and there were some some changes in, for instance, the architecture of hospital wards. And a lot of things, theories that she pioneered, maybe even before understanding things like germ theory, but just recognizing that airy open wards with ventilation led to healthier outcomes um, than these cramped, dank uh, hospitals that she experienced in Crimea. So in that way, she, she's really this pivotal figure where her family is shocked that she's going into nursing. It's not only that she, she doesn't want the drawing room life, it's that she picked of all professions this one that, is, that has no social prestige. And over the course of her life, that situation, that understanding of nursing as a profession changed dramatically. And she contributed dramatically to it. And she wrote a textbook, Notes on Nursing, that became important. I think you can still find in print. And uh, she, she worked on principles of hospital construction. She advocated principles of military medicine. She wrote uh, extensive post-action reports once she got back to England after the Crimean War. These were kind of like exposés of uh, bureaucratic hangups that, that cost people's lives and bad policies and bad implement, implementation of policies. Uh, she she was a pioneer of social scientist in that she used statistical data and presented stuff in charts in a way that hadn't been done before and is now routine. But the other piece that I think we must talk about is she had a religious vision in the religiously uh, fertile era of late 19th century Victorian England. This is really important. Her religious vision was unorthodox. Now, there are some pious biographies that try to make her sound like an uber evangelical Christian, but she wasn't. What she was was an action-oriented critic of established Christianity. She was critical of uh, otherworldly Christianity. She was critical of stupid denominational divisions. Uh, the Catholic Protestant thing in England had never gone away as a problem, and she was critical of that. That had dogged her in the Crimea because 
some people wanted there to be Catholic hospital wards and Protestant hospital wards and all of that when people were dying on the floor, right? She was critical of uh, what you might call drawing room religion, tea party religion, people sitting around um, drinking tea while their neighbors starved or died of preventable diseases. So she attempted uh, a book that was called Suggestions for Thought that was very lengthy, over 600 pages, has, some, has been described by one author as a kind of a, a feminist theology, a mystical theology in a way, and certainly a proto-liberation theology. And I think that's really interesting about Florence Nightingale. When she saw anything that hindered people from taking care to advance human well-being and human flourishing, she attacked it. And part of what she attacked was bad religion indifferent, upper-class, bourgeois religion, and she did it powerfully. During Nightingale's lifetime, did she think of herself as a minister or a theologian or a feminist? Any of these words that we've sort of, these labels we're using to describe her, did she ever claim any of them for herself? Not really. She didn't hold official positions. Uh, my understanding is that she didn't hold official positions after the Crimean War especially because she came down sick with a disease that we think is brucellosis. And so she was confined to her bed, at least to her apartment in London, and she didn't go out. And she had money from the family, so she didn't have to work. And women didn't generally work, you know, if they could not do it. So what she, what she was, in a sense, was a, the kind of person who gets put on, on commissions, the, the kind of person who ends up sitting with the queen and talking about what needs to change. And the kind of person who writes reports and letters, lots and lots of letters about this and that, responding to people's requests for information or correspondence, as well as writing her own stuff. She was a reformer in multiple, multiple realms. Uh, she was a theologian. She was a theorist of nursing. She was a theorist of how bureaucracy should work. She was an advocate for humanity and human well-being. I think this would be a really good place to take a breath and hear from Florence Nightingale herself. This is a creed that she wrote. It explains her theology, her understanding of God, the Christ, and humanity's role in it all. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his best Son, our Master, who was born to show us the way through suffering, to be also his sons and his daughters, his handmen and handmaidens, who lived in the Holy Spirit with the Father, that we may also live in that Holy Spirit, whose meat was to do his Father's will and to finish his work, who suffered and died, saying that the world may love the Father. And I believe in the Father Almighty's love and friendship, in the service of man being the service of God, the growing into a likeness with him by love, the being one with him and his will at last, which is heaven. I believe in the plan of almighty perfection to make us all perfect, and thus I believe in the life everlasting. As we uh, begin wrapping up this conversation on Florence Nightingale, uh, David's going to read from the Moral Leadership book in the Leadership Lessons section found at the end of each leader's chapter. We drew five leadership lessons from Florence Nightingale. Others cannot define you. Florence Nightingale refused to let Victorian era assumptions about the role of women define what she could achieve. Secondly, use your advantages for good. 
look at your advantages in life and try to leverage these to help others. Third, do not overlook your gifts. Uh, Nightingale's gifts included not just nursing, but a number of others. Family does matter. One of the things uh, that we found in our study of moral leaders is a lot of times family relationships were very complicated. And Florence Nightingale found that she was in conflict with her family much of her life, especially her mother and sister. So it was uh, a real problem that she had to navigate for, for her entire life. And gather the facts. Yeah, Florence Nightingale was an empiricist. She wanted to know what worked and what didn't, what saved lives and what took them. And she learned how to present reality effectively. I want to read you um, something she said. Caring for the poor satisfies my soul. It supplies every want of my heart. It heals all my disease. It redeems my life from destruction. Everything else that I do, I always feel that I'm not doing it well or that somebody else would do it better. But this... I know that however badly I do it, that they would be doing it worse. And besides, there is no one else but I to do it. I want nothing else. My heart is filled. I am at home. I want no other heaven. That's a pretty good distillation of her passion and how her spirituality was really a this-worldly spirituality. Many lives were saved as a result of this vision. In this uh, brief conversation of our friend Florence Nightingale, what have we, what have we missed? One of my favorite quotes from Nightingale is, it is a religious act to clean a gutter. We, we can all agree on that. Uh, it, it's a more active, this-worldly form of, of religion, form of Christianity. But then she continues, she says, and it is not a religious act to pray. And that, that's where we get this sort of radical, the free thinker, the heretical ideas, the thing that doesn't match up with our pretty model of her as a you know, perfect evangelical, perfect Christian even. Um, she's not just trying to take core Christianity and make it more active. She's actually re-envisioning what Christianity would look like. And that was her whole, her whole life's mission, was a mission of re-envisioning the realm of the possible. In Victorian era England, a woman did not tell men what to do. A nurse did not tell doctors how to run a hospital. A recluse did not tell the queen how to run a country. A lay medical professional did not tell the army how to run the army. A lay leader did not tell theologians what the nature of God was. She did all of those things. Very good. David, Colin, thank you. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. If you would like more information about the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University, please visit us online at ctpl.mercer.edu. If you'd like to know more about the work and ministries of the voices you heard today, you can find us at our respective websites, revjeremyhall.com, davidpgushy.com, and colindholtz.com. If you'd like more information on great moral leaders, pre-order David and Colin's book, available October 16th of 2018, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, 14 People, who dared to change the world. Our guest reader today was Reverend Kristen Koger. Kristen is a pastor.
for the children and families at First Baptist Decatur in Decatur, Georgia. Thank you. We'll see you next time.